Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. On in our Proverbs series, uh, where we have been looking into the book of Proverbs all through this summer and asking the question, does this have any wisdom for our lives today? And today we are talking about dating. Get ready. Now, I've done a lot of research about this. It seems that there is no word in Proverbs for dating. I don't think there's a Hebrew word for the word dating. Uh, Neither are the words girlfriend, boyfriend, talking, texting, exclusive, or hinge. Just so you know, those are not Hebrew words, so I'm not going to be able to really, really dive into this. In fact, most marriages back in the time when this book was written uh, were actually arranged based on, like, economic or political reasons. The families would, like, talk, and they'd have, like, this business meeting, and then they'd pair off the kids, and then they would live happily ever after. And that was just sort of the way that they did it. And we do it a little bit different today, as we're going to see. They didn't take an Enneagram test. Uh, They didn't do Myers-Briggs or anything like that. They were just like, hey, your dad has 30 camels. My dad needs 30 camels. Let's do this thing, right? Um, So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how then can Scripture actually tell us anything about dating? What we're going to have to do is take a modern cultural practice, the way that we date today, and combine it with uh, timeless scriptural truths and see if it has anything for us. And I believe this is, this is sort of like the big cell, so, so this is, everything sort of hinges on this. I believe that the God who is the author of scripture and made it for our life and for, uh, so that it would be useful and profitable for us uh, is not surprised by dating. This is not something that like caught him off guard. And so as a result, I believe that Proverbs actually has something to show us today. So since scripture neither proscribes, which means to speak against our modern form of dating, it also doesn't prescribe its ancient form of arranged marriages, we can do this safely and still keep like a high view of scripture, okay? So that's my like, you know, that's like the the Surgeon General warning on this sermon, okay? Uh, The sort of more colloquial one is... I don't know what happened, and I do just have to apologize. The, the amount of like personal observations and biblical observations is way off balance here. If any of you are going to come to me with that afterwards, I applaud you on it. You're exactly right. I have not slept at all this week, so who knows what's going to happen up here. We're talking about something that's a little dicey already. Um, so anyway, I'm just sort of asking for a little bit of grace before we even jump in. Also, um, if you're married... Um, or if, you're aren't, if you aren't really interested in ever being married, that's totally cool. So you might be thinking, like, a sermon about dating, what does this have to do with me? Uh, if you are married, know that this isn't advice for how to get your next spouse. That's not really what we're about. Uh, we'll talk about that in two weeks when we're talking about keeping love uh, for a long time for married people. Um, but uh, <clears throat> more or less, what, what I want you to, like, think about this is, is more like, what kind of advice can I give to my friends who are in this dating world? Uh, you're going to interact with people that are sort of in and out of the dating world. So it's good to know. Uh, if you find yourself as a person who is single and wants to stay single, you find yourself in good company of Paul and Jesus and many other biblical characters. And we want to just say, we want to take a brief moment. I know we're talking about dating today, but I want to make this very clear uh, that at Dwell Church, we are not like exclusionary to think that like dating and marriage is the only way that we can go through this life. That's not a biblical idea. Sadly, it is very commonly an American Christian idea. And so uh, more or less, I want to say all that to say like, hey, we're telling you how the Bible can give you advice on how to date wisely and in a godly manner, not saying that everyone has to be in this exact same boat, okay? There's all of my caveats. Uh, Are you guys ready? I don't know. You don't look ready, but we're going to jump in and we'll see what happens, all right? 
<clears throat> All right, here we go. Some of you guys are not going to like this. Finding the one is an absurdly modern comment or uh, concept. <laughs> Finding the one is an absurdly modern concept. Do you guys know the story of Albert and Victoria? Uh, we re recently went to London, and we were walking around all these different places, you know, seeing, like, the Big Ben and Westminster Abbey and all this other stuff. And all throughout, Sarah is, like, at my side, you know. We're, like, walking through, and she's like, oh, my goodness, this is where Albert and Victoria first shook hands. And I'm like, okay, that's weird. And then she's like, oh, my goodness, this is where they first met. And then she's like, oh, my goodness, this is where Victoria watched Albert die. Like, it, I, was, I had no idea what she was talking about at all, but apparently these were, like, big and important moments in British culture. Uh, the story, I did some research, is actually very charming. Uh, basically, she should have married this other guy named Alexander who had better political connections, but instead, in a very romantic move, she chose to marry her cousin, Albert, um, and uh, this brought shame to the throne because he was like a low-level prince in Germany, okay? He wasn't as well-connected as Alexander was. She chose him and actually wrote to her uncle or whoever it was. I guess it would be her uncle who had brought Albert to her. And she chose him, and she said, For the prospect of great happiness you have contributed to me in the person of dear Albert. He possesses every quality that could be desired to render me perfectly happy. It was seemingly, uh, and as the story goes, the first time that a British monarch chose someone for love, not simply for political gain, which is kind of like a big deal, right? So I thought to myself, what a world. Here we are standing next to like the Tower of London, something that for thousands of years has like fought off the Saxons and Vikings and who knows what else. I thought, this is such a cool old story. I wonder what kind of suit of armor that, you know, Albert wore when he showed up to meet Victoria or whatever. I found out in this research that this story happened in the 1840s, right? This is like crazy recent, if you think about that in terms of like all of British history. Like they could have used typewriters, they could have rode on trains. This is not some sort of like ancient Lancelot and Arthur kind of story. This is a very, very recent thing. After that, seemingly, no one in the British monarchy married for love until Harry and Meghan showed up like five years ago, right? Like this is crazy how like relatively modern this idea even is. This idea that finding your soulmate and running away with them is still a shockingly modern idea. Think about this. Most human beings that have ever lived probably didn't even think that that was a possibility and you and I take it for granted, right? You just need to find this one person, perfect person, and marry them, and then your life is going to be happy. Now, I'm going to say something a little bit weird about this, okay? So just be prepared. you got to take it a grain of salt, right? <clears throat> I'm not saying that we go back to exchanging human beings for camels, all right? I don't want, you know, parents making all these decisions for our, our, our children. I don't know that I even want that responsibility to make that for Evie, whatever, right? But I will say is that in this process of becoming modern and all of our ideas about the one, I want to just sort of pose the question, has, is it possible that we've lost something? Is it possible that we've even gained some weird psychological baggage for it? Because now we stress and we worry and we judge and we evaluate these people that we're supposed to marry for years and still the divorce rate is hovering right at about 50%. Like sure, we've changed the way that we think about marriage, but does it make us any better at it? I don't know. Here's what I will say in terms of comparing biblical marriage uh, or the way that marriage happened in the Bible uh, to the way that we do it now. Now we evaluate someone 
very strictly, sometimes even just a social profile of them before we even meet them. And then their entire dating process is just judging, judging, judging. Is this the right person, wrong person, whatever. We evaluate someone else, and then we marry. Back then, what they would do is they would marry, evaluate themselves, and then grow together. So if you were getting married in Solomon's time, you would most likely be arranged by someone other than you, uh, like other than yourself, unless you were like a very powerful man, like maybe the king could sort of choose his wife. But then after you were married, you had the responsibility to be the best husband slash wife that you could be. And that's why all throughout scripture, there are admonitions and even like wisdom and direction on how to be the best husband or wife found uh, even from beginning with Adam and Eve to the Ten Commandments to the Proverbs all the way into the New Testament. It's covered up with these guidelines of how to be a good husband and wife. But as I've been saying, there's no guidelines on how to date really well because the focus you see there is shifted. We put all the focus on evaluating someone else to see whether or not we should marry them. Scripture puts all of the focus on evaluating ourselves to see how good of a husband or wife we could actually be. The switch here is where we put focus and energy and weight we put all kinds of weight and effort to the person that we are supposed to marry and try and make sure that they are the perfect person. Scripture puts the focus on being the spouse that you need to be. And isn't that such a like Jesus-like idea, right? That the focus is on you getting better, making more wise decisions, being more godly, being more righteous as the path to a happy marriage, not changing this other person, but actually like turning that lens on yourself and saying, where can I change, where can I grow? Here's where all of this has been heading before we sort of like really, really dive into this passage and see what it has for us. <clears throat> maybe, just maybe, we're in a place where our standards and expectations of marriage and of other people are high, sometimes even unreasonably so. Our expectations of what should happen may not necessarily be based in reality. And then in aiming for the perfect partner who doesn't exist, some of us might be missing out on a happy life with an imperfect person where we could grow together and be more perfect, a.k.a. more like Jesus together. So if you're sitting next to someone who's single right now, I want you to look at them and get married. But I'm just kidding. That's not what it is. I'm just trying to say we really need to take this into a great... People are holding hands all over the room. It is happening right now. Man, this got really weird. Already, We haven't even jumped into the weird part yet. You guys don't even know. <laughs> Last thing I'll say about this. <clears throat> I know many of you, and I've actually said many of this, or said this to some of you before, that you'll actually be a better husband or wife than you are a boyfriend, girlfriend. And that actually should be like some sort of high praise. Maybe you should take some of the steam and the sting and the difficulty out of this entire dating thing. <clears throat> all right. So if all of that is true... We have to ask the question, like I'm not saying we should just throw out looking all together, but what do we actually look for? What kind of a standard should we actually use to judge this person that we're dating? Check this out from Proverbs 31. Now, before we go any further, some of you recovering youth group ladies just heard me say Proverbs 31, your blood pressure rose a little bit, right? Like there's kind of like some uncomfortable giggles to prove that I am right here in this moment, right? Uh, for those of you guys who have no idea what I'm talking about, Proverbs 31 lists out a description of what an excellent wife is. And for a while, it became like a trendy teaching topic for women in the church. Men, we never heard of it, right? Uh, it was just like we'd split off the boys and the girls. Uh, boys are going over here. They're going to be told to be strong and to, you know, uh, be wild at heart or whatever. Women, you're going over here, and we're going to teach you about this, like, 
absurdly ridiculous list of people of like women in like uh, living in Solomon's time. And you're reading about how she's like making, you know, clothes for herself and she has a spindle and then she's selling linen in the marketplace. And you're like, dang, I don't even know what a spindle is. I guess I've got a lot of work to do. I am definitely not a biblical woman. Man, this is crazy. Now, it's weird for me to think about giving this advice exclusively to women when it was written exclusively to men. If you've been here before, through this Proverbs series, you know that Proverbs was originally collected as like wisdom that kings would pass down from one another. Now, I'm not saying that it was meant to, you know, stay that way. Obviously, we put it in the canon of scripture so that it could be useful and profitable for everybody. But the original way that they collected it was like Solomon and other kings through the years were like, hey, this has really helped me out in my leadership. I need to pass this information down to somebody else. I need to make the kings of Israel continue to grow and be better and be stronger and make wise decisions. And that's where this advice gets put, Proverbs 31. This advice uh, was what type of woman, perhaps, for the king to look for, not necessarily what type of wife that you should actually be. Now, obviously, those two are somewhat the same thing, right? You can see how you could reverse engineer it. But it's a little bit backwards just to throw all of that on ladies, especially even, like, I I heard somebody say that, like, even as a child, they were being taught this, like, weird sort of church-slash-home-ec thing so that they might achieve this goal of being a Proverbs 31 woman. It's a little bit strange and backwards, I think, to throw all of that onto women and children specifically to say that if you don't ever live up to it, you won't be a woman, you won't ever get married, you won't be an excellent wife, whatever. And then all of a sudden it snowballed into this thing to where there's like these whole like lady conferences where they're out there uh, gathering together, making purple linen clothes for themselves and learning how to score sweet deals in the marketplace so that they might achieve this goal, right? It got really, really, really weird. Here's what I will say, just because our passage today comes from Proverbs 31. This is not a list of reasons why you're not married. It's not a list of reasons to judge yourself up against and to feel guilty and to feel worthless as a person. It's not a recipe for landing a man. But I want us to also recognize something. That it's also not a list invented by the patriarchy to suggest some outdated picture of what a woman would be before we were so enlightened to the evils of gender norms. And I say all of that to say, like, I just, I spent 10 minutes poking fun at the Proverbs 31 woman movement, and it was actually, like, probably not funny for some of you. It was probably abusive and harmful and difficult, and I, I don't even pretend to understand what that is. And all I'm really inviting you to do here is to say, like, what are we supposed to do with it now? Because it is still a part of the canon of Scripture. It's still there for a reason. It has to be there to give us some sort of wisdom and guidance. You wouldn't throw out your phone and get rid of it entirely because you dropped it on your foot once. So what I'm inviting you to do is to maybe view it as what it was, which was the picture of what a very perfect and probably unrealistically perfect wife in Solomon's day would be. I don't think that maybe this was actually just one necessarily like one singular person. And there's wisdom and there's beauty in it, obviously used in the wrong context. There's harm and unreasonable expectations, but there is wisdom and beauty in it. And maybe, since this was originally written to the kings, married men in the room, though you are not kings, don't think of yourself that way, married men in the room, maybe you can use this as a way to actually congratulate and praise your own wife, as it says to do in verse 28. In the ways that she lives up to this, not as a weapon and a ruler to use against her. 
Okay, caveat over. Let's look at Proverbs 31:30. This entire chapter was written by a guy named Lemuel, uh, similar to Agur from last week. This is one of the proverbs that we know was not written by Solomon, but probably collected by him. We have no record of an Israelite king named Lemuel, uh, which is interesting. So perhaps this wisdom was collected from either outside the tribe of Israel. Or the word king gets kind of like mistranslated. Maybe he was like a governor or some sort of like leader or something like that. Here's what he says in verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. As I've said multiple times now, this is written for kings living around 900 BC. So naturally it was written for men. Uh, But I think in this particular instance, it probably gives us good advice on choosing a spouse in general, be they man or woman. Two things you should look out, for while, look out for while dating, and one thing that you should be on the lookout for. First is that charm is deceitful. Charm is deceitful. Charm is not something that we talk about a lot. I believe, uh, for those of you guys who are like under 30 in the room, this, is, this could be called riz now, I think, is the actual term for that. I don't really know how to use it in a sentence, uh, but I believe riz is what you would call it. Charm is often thought of as the number one quality that you should be looking for in a spouse. Some of you guys are dead that I even knew what that was. I love it. Charm is often thought of as the number one thing you should be looking for in the spouse, but Lemmy here says that this is deceitful. Now, I'm going to share something with you that's a little bit embarrassing for me, and it is just a, a peek into the, into the algorithm of the social medias that they have whenever I'm, like, you know, being a sluggard and scrolling. I was scrolling through YouTube. You see these short videos of these guys that are like using pickup lines or playing guitar for like random girls on college campuses. Have you seen these videos? Am I the only weirdo that this like creeps into my algorithm, you know? Because the terrible thing is like you see something like that and you go, that's weird. And then you see it three more times and you go like, why is this showing me this? And then you're like, what does this say about me? That obviously it's tracking my eyeballs and know that I enjoy watching this content. Anyway, it's on there. In these videos, uh, a guy comes up and he like drops some pickup line or something like that. And the girl's like, oh my God let me give you my phone number, right? Like, it's like that kind of video. The very fact that these videos are on social media should also tell you that they are deceitful in and of themselves. They are fake very often. Uh, Sometimes they are just completely and utterly staged. Like, these are two people that already know each other, and they just, like, stage this little play for us for whatever reason, I guess, to get ad content or something. Uh, And the second, even for the real ones, all it really takes is, like, a cute guy, some research for a good line, and a little bit of confidence, that's why it's so deceitful. He goes and he sits down next to the girl and he like drops this line and she's like, oh my gosh, a cute guy and he's interested in me? This is such a big deal, right? You know he like read that on YouTube some, or like saw it on YouTube somewhere else, right? Like he stole this line from the internet, uses it on a girl, and then all of a sudden she's supposed to like swoon after him. This is like to point out the fact that this whole charm thing is not some sort of innate thing that happens inside of people. It's not like some people are just born charming. It's also not something that you earn out of being righteous or actually a good person. It's something you can just pick up along the way. That's what makes it deceitful. It's not real. That's why we all read articles or watch videos about putting together like our dating profile. You know, it's like telling you how to be charming in that. That's why we read the articles in like Cosmo magazine to, you know, tell us how we might catch a man or something like that. This is why we go to cotillion classes. And if you don't know, I went backwards in time there in that actual example, if you saw that right, just working out all backwards. But all of these are different methods that we have used through the years to teach us how to be charming, which should again highlight to you that if it can be taught that it's probably not a real thing 
It's probably not looking out or worth looking out for. The last example, and this one's a little savage, but if you guys ever watch Dateline, whenever I pull up Dateline and I'm watching it or whatever, I'm like really, really wondering how a pudgy 45-year-old man with like a receding hairline can have like a beautiful wife and family and a secret much younger woman on the side. I'm like, I don't even know how he landed this first wife. How is he over here having this second wife? And the answer is charm, right? He was always a charming guy. That's how they describe him. Which I love those interviews. It's like you know that like he ends up murdering someone, and somehow they got these people on Dateline to be like, well, when we met, he was so charming, right? That's freaky, right? And it should show us that it's deceitful, and we should be very, very worried about charm in people's life because you know what happens on Dateline, right? Somebody's going to die. One of these beautiful women that he is like involved with is not going to make it through this episode, right? Spoilers. Sorry about that. It's absurd, Charm is ultimately deceitful. You shouldn't build one of the most important decisions of your life off of how charming a person is. So what is the opposite of charm? What is the opposite of deceit? I believe that it is honesty and vulnerability. If a marriage is what you're after, then honesty is what you should lead with. Trust and growth is your goal, then vulnerability should be the norm from day one. These should be what you're looking for and also what you're bringing to the table. A relationship built on these two things would mean that from the beginning, there's no faking, uh, there's no putting on of airs, there's no trying to be someone else, but actually the goal of both people entering into this relationship is trying to be who they actually are. You know, the goal of marriage is actually not just so that you two people might be happy, but it's actually just that two people might grow to look more and more like Jesus. And you simply aren't going to be able to do that if you aren't who you are, if you're trying to be charming. On the other hand, opening up to someone in honesty and vulnerability allows them to see your life, allows them to speak into your life, allows them to bond with you and through dating and eventually perhaps marriage, you end up being two people who love each other, who love Jesus, and in creating really what is like the only healthy love triangle between you, this other person, and Jesus, you're able to grow in love along all of those lines. That You might actually love Jesus more by the way that you love and sacrifice yourself for this other person. That You might actually love them more by the way that you love Jesus and grow to understand his capacity for love for you. That is the only true source for a marriage that is real, for a relationship that is true and honest and vulnerable. Next, Lemmy tells us that beauty is vain. Beauty is vain. I looked at myself in the mirror the other day, and I thought, you know what? Sarah and I have been married for 12 years. I'm standing there looking at myself in the mirror, and I thought, you know what you do when you marry someone? You, like, marry a person, and then they just get worse. Right, like you marry a really beautiful person. I'm sure I was beautiful back then. I weighed like 100 pounds, and I had a shaved head, and I didn't wear glasses, and uh, I was just killing it. It's weird. Uh, back in that day, I do a lot of weddings, and uh, I've never heard anybody vow, like, even though you'll probably never look better than you look today, I take you, my husband or wife, right? But it's true, right? Like, uh, the wedding day is kind of the pinnacle, and then we just get older and worse, and you start getting illnesses and aches and pains and stuff like that. It just doesn't work out really well. 
that's not very fairy tale. You know, it does probably wouldn't work well in a wedding scenario. But it's true. <clears throat> Beauty is fleeting. It doesn't stay with you for long. It's also interesting that it says here that beauty is vain. Might sound sort of like a, uh, a redundant kind of saying that to, to be beautiful, that you would sort of like be vain, focused on your own beauty. But I think what he's actually trying to say here is very similar to the way that vain is used throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, is sort of like the way that like it's not meaningful, like it doesn't really mean anything. And yet, all throughout life, we trust beautiful people more. Uh, we sort of like tend to raise them up into leadership positions, and it, it's not real. We all know that, right? Like, if you've watched PBS for 10 minutes, then you've like gotten this lesson before, and yet still, it sucks us in. It's deceitful. Here are some non-biblical observations about beauty. Are you ready for these? Pretty people don't have to work as hard. There it is. If you want to marry a hard worker, don't marry a pretty person. Pretty people get away with everything. They're not hard workers. That's why when you're driving down the road and you see, like, construction workers digging a ditch on the side of the road, you never look out there and you're like, wow, that's a really pretty construction worker over there. That's a good-looking lady out there digging that ditch. No, they're out there getting out of speeding tickets and spraying people with cologne at Hollister, whatever it is that pretty people do, right? Pretty people are not hard workers. I want to tear this down right now. Secondly, pretty people are bad to hang out with. Think about it, that image of you like getting married and settling down, sharing a carton of ice cream while you sit under a blanket watching Sleepless in Seattle. That guy that you're imagining snuggling with right now, he doesn't have a six pack, he's eating ice cream out of the carton, right? He's right there with you, like, and a six pack would not be comfortable to lay on, right? Like it's all bumpy and stuff like that, you don't want that. Also, you're watching Sleepless in Seattle, you know who doesn't have a six pack? Tom Hanks, right? Like, I don't think that's ever been something he's been accused of having. You know that Instagram model that you see? She can't eat ice cream. She works out on vacation. You don't want to be with her. Pretty people are bad to hang out with. Who wants that? Finally, pretty people are never as funny. Humor has to come from some sort of pain, some sort of adversity, some sort of difficulty in life. You don't get to be funny without having the weight of the world come crushing down on you. I'm sorry. The irony is that half of you in the room right now were thinking, like, I'm the exception to that rule. I'm pretty and funny. Maybe. <laughs> right? Maybe. I don't know. <clears throat> Here's the idea. The kind of spouse that you land with uh, your beauty is not the one that you will want for life. Right? Like, if you can catch somebody just because you're pretty, then their priorities are probably so out of whack that you don't want to hang out with them anyway. Right? Like, think about it. And yet... So many of us are, like, going to these, like, great lengths of, like, you know, makeup and hair and working out and trying to say, like, I need to make myself this perfect physical specimen so that I can go out and find that person. But if that's what lands you, your future spouse, then they're probably not going to be somebody that you want to be with anyway. Conversely, the kind of spouse that you pick because of their beauty may not be so great a person when their beauty fades. What we have to do is try the difficult work of looking past the superficial. This is going to be extra hard today because dating profiles are like 70% photos, right? Like you're swiping on a person's face as to whether or not you actually like them or not. I mean, so much of our world is built around these like false standards of beauty. And it's going to be very, very difficult for you to like detox your brain to even think any differently. Like you realize, of course, that Beauty has absolutely no bearing on a person's, like, 
worth as a human being or their wisdom or their righteousness. Like, it's, it's completely unrelated. Not to mention the fact that it's fleeting. It's going away. It'll be gone one day. And it never really corresponded with their hearts. Beauty should not be a part of your guidelines when you're looking to find the person that you're supposed to be with. So charm is deceitful, beauty is vain. What then should we look for? Well, he tells us in the second half of this verse, fear of the Lord is to be praised. This is the main quality that you should be looking for in a person, fear of the Lord. The word fear here, if you've read much of the Old Testament and sort of seen this before, fear uh, shares roots with the words awe and awesome. I'm sorry, I'm from the South. I say awe with like multiple syllables, but I think you guys understand what I'm saying. Fear, respect, revere, these are all like good synonyms for what he's talking about here. Uh, But we don't really have like a word for this in modern English. It's very strange. We don't have like fear with a positive connotation. Like fear, and this is a good thing that you should fear it. But think about it. It's like fearing a thunderstorm or the Grand Canyon, fearing a lion tamer in the cage with the lion, right? or uh, fear like a lion tamer in the cage with a lion. To give something or someone their due respect and to fear. Proverbs is all about fear of the Lord. Here is seriously, like, uh, I I captured all of these verses where it talks about fear of the Lord in Proverbs. And then I, like, cut them in half. And then I went to sermon meeting, and they were like, you got to cut them in half again. Like, I cannot really, really emphasize enough how many verses in Proverbs deal with fear of the Lord. Here are just six of them. Are you ready for these? Proverbs 1-7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 3-7, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Proverbs 10-27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Proverbs 14, 26, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. Proverbs 15, 16, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Proverbs 28, 14, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. I cannot emphasize enough that this is nowhere near all the places where the fear of the Lord is identified with wisdom. That fearing God is actually the beginning of all wisdom. And this makes sense, right? Like a healthy respect for the God of the universe would be the absolute baseline for making good decisions, right? I used to work at a coffee shop uh, in New Orleans while we were living there. Um, The owners of this coffee shop were a couple named Marty and Donna. Uh, they were able to open up this coffee shop because Marty did a bunch of roofing and stuff and made a bunch of money and stuff. So they were like, here's our little pet project. We're going to open up this coffee shop. Now, Marty uh, would bumble in every few days and like break something or bring us like a $3,000 microwave that we didn't need uh, or make somebody's drink wrong. That was always the worst, right? We're like cultivating these relationships with these uh, customers and stuff. And then he bops in and he's like, you know, just making this terrible drink. Like there were literally some customers that like Marty would make their drink and we're like over his shoulder like, I got you, I'm gonna take care of you, I'm making another one over here, just you do it right. Uh, he'd come in, uh, we actually called it a Marty cane when he was on his way, like, uh, like somebody would get off the phone, they'd be like, Marty canes are coming, batting down the hatches. It was cool if you worked there, I don't think you guys get it now. Anyway, <clears throat> it was kind of like Michael Scott, right? Like we had to work twice as hard to make up for him helping out a little bit. Everybody was laughing and talking about him behind his back. It was probably not kind. Conversely, no one made fun of Miss Donna. 
right? Like, that was just not something that you did. She was the one that signed our checks. She was the one that was, like, in charge of the whole shop. Our, our tiny little futures were, like, held in her hands, right? One day, uh, they hired somebody new, uh, and she wrote something on con- unkind on the, like, calendar whiteboard about Miss Donna. And we don't know what happened to her to this day. She's just gone. I'm assuming she was fired. No one ever heard from her again. Her body might be in a swamp somewhere. We really just have no idea what happened. And I share all of that to say that a healthy fear of the person who is in charge is actually some wisdom. So if God is in charge of the entire universe, then a healthy fear and respect of him is the beginning of wisdom. Like it's a wise choice to actually fear and respect Miss Donna, right? Like you know she is the one that is in control. And as best as I can understand it, the world is set up one of two ways. Like, these are kind of your two options that you have to choose to understand how the world works around you. Option A is that everything is random, and we just popped up here, and we have to do our best to figure it out, and then we die, and we try and be nice to each other in the meantime, right? Option B is that there is a God in charge of the universe, that he is good and kind and just, and that he sent his son to die for us so that we might live with him forever. Now, if A is true, then do whatever you want and try your hardest. Do your best. Do whatever you can. Come up with your own determination of what right and wrong is. Do what makes you happy. Just try and enjoy life as much as you can. That's all it's about. But if B is true, then fear of this God is the only sane option, right? He demands your respect. This is one of the reasons, and this is like difficult to say, we don't like to talk and think about this very often, but people who don't believe in God already stand in opposition to him, right? Like that's not the way that we necessarily want to approach them, and we don't want to like look down on them for that. We really want to help them by giving them the good news of the gospel, but like that is the state that we are in with this God who is actually in control of everything, and then we're down here just pretending that he doesn't exist. Like how crazy would that be if like, you know, I'm over there at the coffee shop and we're making stuff and somebody's like, ooh, Miss Donna's not going to like that, and I'm like, I don't know that Miss Donna really exists. Oh, she's upstairs? Right, right. I don't really get that. Yeah, that's how many people react to God. There's no middle ground here. You either stand in this fear and respect of him and thus fully understand your need for his free gift of salvation through his son, or you stand in opposition to him. Everyone must make a choice. Even today you can make that choice. And if you're curious and you want to talk more about that, I would love nothing more in the world to talk to you about that. We're also going to have a time in just a second where we respond, and there's going to be people out in the lobby who would love to pray with you about that or anything else. But to get back to the matter at hand, better than charm, better than beauty is a person who knows where they actually stand with God, a person who fears the Lord. This should be the number one quality that you're looking for. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 6.14. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? 
You see that? Like if we're called to be different from the rest of the world for following Jesus, if we're called to a different standard than the rest of the world, if we believe in his death, burial, and resurrection, and that through that sacrifice, he's made a way for us to be with him forever in heaven. And in light of that, in light of that we live our lives seeking to uh, be his people and fulfill his kingdom mission. If all of that is true, then how can we be with someone? How could we date or even marry someone who's like trying to do something completely different? just trying to be a good person. How can we be with someone who's aiming for anything else than that? What we ought to do is seek someone who is following Jesus. More than charm, more than beauty, look for someone who's trying their hardest to follow after God. Not a perfect person, mind you, but a person who loves the word of God, who loves his church, who's seeking to live their lives for and with Jesus. Here are just a couple of pro tips on this because I do think it is hard to tell. I've learned in my research on the, the modern online dating sphere uh, that really uh, kind of nefarious dudes will put on their profile that they are Christian so they can find a nice woman. That's kind of crazy, right? But it happens. So here's some like things you can look for already, like in an initial meetup or something like that. Are they meaningfully connected to a local church? It's really hard to be a thriving Christian. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's really hard to be a thriving Christian and not connected to a local body of believers. Ask them about their faith background. Watch them in their lives and see the ways that they are trying to follow Jesus. If you go on like three dates with a person and they don't even like talk about Jesus or faith, then you should probably have some like red flags, some questions there. Keep your eye out for someone who's following Jesus. And finally, more importantly, if we want to take this like biblical emphasis that's more on ourselves than the other person, be someone who is seeking Jesus, who is following Jesus. If you're on the hunt for a spouse, if you're in this sort of like dating phase, this is the first and last step. This is what you should be asking yourself always. More than like going to the gym so that you can like look like a perfect person, uh, more than like trying to like, you know, fix your makeup or whatever like that, we should first and foremost be a person who is following Jesus because when you're seeking after Jesus, when you are like trying to follow him, when you're trying to live your life for him, he will give you what you need to do his work. We talk about this all the time here at Dwell Church, right? It's like a concept that's really, really hit me hard the past few years. That if Jesus is calling you to do something, he becomes sort of like your employer, your supervisor. He's like, hey, I'm sending you out on mission. He is the one then responsible for giving you what you need. Right? Like he's not going to just send you out with nothing. The queen doesn't send out James Bond and just be like, oh, sorry, you have a $20 stipend per day, so good luck. Uh, we don't want to all be blown up. No, James Bond has whatever he needs, right? Like he can, he can take advantage of everything. Jesus here in sending us out on his most important mission in all of eternity to go out and share and build his kingdom is going to give you exactly what you need to do his work. And if it is a spouse, then he will send that person to you when you need them. If it is a good friend, he will send that to you too. If it is a period and a time of soul-searching singleness, then he may send you that. And if that's the case, then we count it not as a curse, but actually as a blessing from God. 
the beautiful thing is, in spite of all of this sort of questions and curiosities and confusion that we have about dating, is that if you can keep your eyes fixed, keep your, your heart dependent on Jesus, if you're committed to serving him and his kingdom, then I believe he will ser- supply every single one of your needs, whatever that may be. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.